today, President Biden sent an immigration bill to Congress. If Joe Biden had his druthers, Congress would make immigration reform a top priority. The U.S. Citizenship Act modernizes our immigration system. It provides hardworking people who've enriched our communities and lived here for decades an opportunity to earn citizenship. Or at least that's the message he sought to convey when he sent Congress a comprehensive immigration proposal on his first day in office. That plan, like the bipartisan legislation that passed the Senate eight years ago, centers around a simple bargain. Stepped-up enforcement going forward, in exchange for a reprieve from deportation and eventually citizenship for the existing unauthorized population. There's a problem, though. Actually, there's a bunch of problems. First, Republicans in Congress have abandoned that framework. They controlled the House back in 2013 when the immigration bill had the votes to pass, but GOP hardliners saw to it that it never got to the floor. Then, Republicans ran into the arms of Donald Trump, and they remain committed to his nativist vision of a country that expels non-white immigrants and makes life hell for those who seek a better life here. Democrats could, in theory, abolish the filibuster and pass Biden's plan by themselves, but they have a bunch of other problems to address first. To start, Democrats lost ground with Latinos in 2016 and 2020. They assumed that Republicans would deepen the hole they've dug with voters of color by making Trump the face of their party, but it didn't happen. Now, Miami-Dade is 70% Hispanic. You would expect that that would depress the votes for Trump in Miami-Dade County, but the opposite happened. He's doing better there with non-white voters than he did four years ago. Instead of beating Republicans in a historic wave, the Democratic majority in Congress actually shrunk leaving the party riven with doubt over which appeals to immigrant communities actually work. Then, a few weeks after Inauguration Day, a migrant crisis at the southern border re-erupted. The U.S. is holding some 13,000 unaccompanied minors after a surge in arrivals that began in January. Conditions along the border have worsened, fueling demands both good faith and bad for Biden to fix them. But without political resolve and the willingness to act alone, Democrats in Congress may not be able to give Biden the tools he needs. And as long as the problems go unresolved, it'll threaten to derail his larger immigration agenda, and maybe even more than that. So what should he do? More importantly, what can he do? And how should Democrats in Congress balance the politics and substance of the issue to best help him? My guest this week is Congressman Ruben Gallego, he represents Arizona's 7th District and has emerged as a leading voice within the party as it seeks to increase its margins among Latinos. We invited him on to answer these and other questions the party will have to answer in Biden's first 100 days. I'm Brian Boitler. Welcome to Rubicon. Congressman Ruben Gallego, great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, Brian. Uh, so before we zoom out a bit, can you help our listeners understand what's happening at the border, why conditions seem to have deteriorated recently, and how, if at all, uh, this differs from past migrant influxes? So I think the most important thing we have to understand is that the border is a very complicated thing, as well as immigration, right? And so you have a lot of things that are going on right now. Most importantly, you have what is consistent migrant flows from Central America that's been going on for the last five years— uh, coming to the United States. 
Now, to add to the addition of that, there has been hundreds of thousands of these families that have already been on the other side of the border waiting in Mexico uh, to be processed into the United States. Now, in addition, you have a big flow of unaccompanied minors that are coming in now, which are putting a big stress on on the system, as well as your just normal, um, if if there's a thing as normal, uh, undocumented people crossing the border. Uh, But you add the extra element of COVID-19 and you're adding this new stress to the whole system because what usually happens is if an unaccompanied minor comes to the border, Border Patrol will pick them up and they will transfer them to HHS. And then HHS will make sure that they don't have COVID-19. And then they turn them over to what's called ORR, which is in charge of refugees. And they try to move them out of the custody they're in right now and into a foster home or a family member's home uh, as fast as possible. Because we don't want to have these unaccompanied children uh, in these housing situations. I would say the most important thing that, that, that I know is that this administration has certainly been more humanitarian for these unaccompanied minors than we had seen under the previous administration. You know, we, we're the, one of the main reasons why we're having a housing problem is because they're, they're trying to make sure that uh, these young men and women are actually able to live uh, in, momentarily in as healthy of a COVID-free environment as possible. So normally where you can fit, you know, for example, a couple of young children in a trailer uh, now they're only putting one or two children in that trailer. So all that is causing this, this backup. Uh, and then at the same time, you do have a very reluctant uh, border patrol uh, and ICE culture that I think are also contributing to this problem. So what has uh, President Biden done so far to mitigate the situation? What more can he do on his own? I mean, you hinted uh, that that CBP and ICE could be more constructive partners, for lack of a, a better term, could you know maybe that's one area Biden could do something. And what can Congress or should Congress do to kind of help the situation in the immediate term? So what the president has done right away, for example, is that you know just to even stop the flow of people, they've been spending money in Central and Latin America, you know, doing advertisements telling people to stay in Central America. I can say quite clearly, don't leave your town or city or community. Don't come. Don't make the border crossing. It's too far. It's too dangerous. And, you know, the, it, it only is going to slow down a process when you could, you know, do it in a legal and safe manner in another way. The other thing they're doing is under the Trump administration, if a the unaccompanied minor or a minor came across with his, with his or her family and the Trump people separated them from their family, in order for, for that young person to leave and go live with a relative, the relative also had to prove that they were in this country uh, legally. So a lot of these young men and women stayed in detention because most of their family members that they could go live with uh, were undocumented. So the president, uh, Biden, has lifted that restriction. And so now people are calling and, and saying, yes, this is my, my niece, this is my nephew, I'm coming to pick them up, right? Because that's the ideal situation. Ideally, you want them to, to be with family because that's the safest, safest things we can, we can do. Um, and then it's just you know, for example, bringing FEMA to set up even more bed spaces for these these children. Uh, I think that's really important too. Again, we're trying to process them and at the same time trying to keep them COVID safe. Uh, and by treating it like a real emergency using FEMA uh, with their uh, abilities to basically coordinate and find the bed space, I think that's going to solve a lot of these problems. Do you see like the situation itself and maybe fear of political consequences around the fact that there's this sort of crisis environment at the border contributing to some paralysis in Congress 
on this issue of of uh, migrant flows specifically or immigration reform more generally? I think there's always is going to be a perpetual problem um, that we just have to really get over. Um, I think there there are some Democrats and then some moderate Republicans that as soon as you know something happens to the border, the automatic response is to snap back, right? And and you actually kind of saw that in 2018, where we had again this situation, and the Democrats still won in 2018. Uh, but the natural inclination is just to kind of retrench, which I think is the really dumb thing to do, right? So really dumb thing to do, and you're playing into the the hands of the Republicans when you do that. Um, this is a problem. The the border and you know it, you know being uh, where it is right now is a problem, and, and we have to figure out a way to fix it. But it's going to happen every year, at least until Central America, you know, fixes itself or we we contribute to to fixing it. But it doesn't mean that you shouldn't still go for for immigration reform because number one, the the, the communities that are crossing over the border right now, they're not going to be eligible for immigration reform. Right. And whenever we play that game into the Republicans game where we lump all the immigrants coming to, together, all the refugees together as one, it's always going to be easy for them to stop immigration reform. Uh, so we need to continue moving forward. We need to continue educating, uh, you know, the, 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 the voter, just everyday citizens. You know, the fact that most Americans don't understand that these refugees are not like undocumented people that cross the border. They're not even getting caught by Border Patrol. They're literally turning themselves in so they can get processed for refugee status. And if you don't get the refugee status, you get sent back to your home country. Uh, you know, and, and you know, they, they somehow think that this is like, what, you know, what it would be like a, a Mexican national crossing the border. Uh, and, and, you know, they're kind of the same thing. They're not. They're, they're totally different. Okay. So apart from the migrant crisis, how do you assess the Biden administration's early, I guess, immigration adjacent actions? Um, so I'm thinking things like his nominees, his early process trying to reunite families that Trump separated things along those lines that are sort of separate from his forward-looking immigration agenda? I would say, like, I have been pleasantly surprised. Uh, I think Biden has actually been much stronger and more assertive when it comes to immigration than, than, he, than certainly the Obama administration was in the first 100 days. Let me break in for a moment to explain how immigration got lost in the shuffle after President Obama took office. First, it fell down the priority list due to the financial crisis and the year-long legislative fight over health care. Second... Obama spent quite a long time trying to gain conservative support for a comprehensive plan by ramping up immigration enforcement. But the strategy didn't work. His allies weren't happy, and Republicans weren't interested in playing ball. Only then did Obama change tax and implement DACA, a legal reprieve for dreamers, on his own. But Biden has been able to dispense with all of that buildup. You know, he was quick to overturn the um, the Dream Act lawsuit and pulling the United States out of that. Uh, you know, he has worked with us, the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, to start putting together immigration reform bill. You know, he hired Mayorkas, which is something that we were very, uh, you know, very proud of that he did because he's a great uh, and honest servant. Uh, and you know, he's communicated with us his intentions when it comes to uh, the border, when it comes to uh, immigration reform. So, um, you know, I'm not not tooting his horn just because I'm a Democrat, but like, honestly, compared to the Obama administration where we were really played second fiddle for quite a while, this has been a, a vast improvement. What did you make of the fact that the first bill he sent to Congress, given sort of everything that's happening in America, was a comprehensive immigration reform bill? Did it surprise you that that was his first move? Yeah, it surprised me because, you know, he, 
even even I as a politician am cynical when I hear politicians promise like that's the first thing I'm going to do, right? On day one, I'm going to send a legislative immigration reform bill to Congress. I kind of thought when like it's the one of the many first things I'm going to do when it actually was the first thing he did. I'm like, okay, well that's impressive, <laughs> you know. Um, and look, and I think he's right. Uh, you know, one of the things that people forgot about this last election is that one of the main reasons why Democrats slipped with Latinos, among many reasons, is because we didn't talk about immigration reform as much. Uh, and and we need to really own that issue and in order for us to continue to get, get support of the Latino community, but also just go in the social justice areas. That's interesting to me because I, I was going to ask a more cynical question, which was like, how much of the thinking around that decision to send Congress a comprehensive immigration reform bill as a first order business, do you think predated the election and the ensuing debate over why Trump did better than many expected he would do with Latino voters. Like, it seemed to me like maybe that would make uh, the the new administration kind of want to back off. Well, I mean, I think if you lo- if you just looked at it from the outside you, and didn't quite understand what's happening in the Latino community, you would assess that, oh, these Latinos that voted for Trump um, were, were anti-immigration Latinos. And that's not necessarily the case. It's, you know, if you look at all, it's all over the spectrum. Like Cubans, I mean, Cubans have been the beneficiaries of the, some of the most loosest immigration laws that we've ever had in this country. Um, you know, if you look at, you know, South Texas, it's a combination of people that want immigration reform, but at the same time also were worried about, you know, housing and jobs that they, they felt were, they were losing because of the shutdown. But the fact is, is that the, what we should really tell you what the issue was is that Donald Trump himself did not campaign on immigration. If you listen to, like, Spanish radio, he didn't talk at all about cracking down the border. He didn't talk about, you know, um, you know, the border wall. As a matter of fact, he went on Univision and said that he's going to legalize all U.S. citizens by executive order two weeks before the election. So everyone seems to, for, like, it's just like recreating a campaign that did not happen, right? Uh, and it's, it's hard for, you know, I think like a lot of Anglos just want to accept the, the, the easiest answer, which is like, well, these Latinos must be these Latinos that don't like immigration. Like, no, Latinos are very complicated voters, uh, and they vote on very different things. But if you look at it, like we should have been campaigning also on immigration reform. I am glad you brought this up because it, I, I take it you've heard there's been some debate over this matter of Democrats' performance among Latino voters in the last few months. Before I get into the bigger question, do you have a theory of the case and or or um, and beyond your theory of the case, do you have an assessment of sort of how alarmed Democrats should be about how the election came out? Well, I, I, my theory of the case is it was death by paper cuts. Now, to begin with, a a Republican incumbent will always do better with Latinos the second time around, right? You look back at history, uh, Latino voters will always vote for the incumbent a little more than the last time, right? It doesn't matter who it was, whether it's Clinton, Bush, uh, and, and Trump was not going to be any exception, right? So there's that movement that happened right there. Number two, I think... COVID was a big psychological break for the Latino community. A lot of us lost jobs, lost housing. They were afraid of being shut down again. They, they, they actually were affected by the Trump stimulus uh, and saw the Trump checks coming through. Uh, and I think that, you know, again, was a little slice that kind of moved the needle uh, a little more. And then what matters is, is where you campaign and how you campaign. You know, when you have someone like Donald Trump, who's just like omnipresent kind of personality, uh, you know, and, and also 
kind of brings in something that is very attractive within Latino communities, like it's called la, la, man, la, la mano dura, right? The hard hand, like the, the, the kind of fascist side of politics. Latinos are actually attracted by that. And I think people, especially white liberals, don't want to accept that. But that is true. There's a reason why there's, there used to be so many fascist regimes in Latin America, right? And all those things combined, plus the fact that we couldn't do door canvassing, swayed communities in certain areas. And where did it sway? It swayed communities where there was no active campaign by the Biden campaign, right? So if you look at, for example, Springfield, Massachusetts, Trump moved, I think, like 10 points. You know, I mean, he still lost the Latino community by huge areas in there. But the reason he did it is because there was no active campaign against Trump. Now, look at my area, Maricopa County, uh, and even in my district. Trump only moved one to two points in my district. And again, that's the incumbent effect. But the reason why he couldn't move so much in my district is because we have an active campaign that had been hitting him and hitting Republicans all year. Now, you go over to California, you saw these big swings, again, where there was no active campaign. So if you let things stand as they are, if you let an incumbent and if you don't canvas and in the middle of a pandemic, you're going to end up doing better with Latinos. Better meaning that you got not to 30%, but you got closer to 30%. And by the way, had he gotten 30%, he probably would have won the election. But where it mattered, he lost the Latino vote by significant numbers. Arizona, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Now you get down to Florida. The Florida political world is entirely different from anything else. So like the Florida Cuban is not at all closely related or reminiscent at all to like the, the Tejano or the Chicano or, or, you know, or the Latinx. I don't like that term, but there's people that, that, that use it. Right. Um, but, you know, that environment there, if you go down there and campaign, it is, it is very multicultural. It is very sophisticated. And by the time the Biden campaign wrapped up the primary and then were able to shift resources under, there had been a four-year campaign by the, the Trump campaign that was very impressive that was just not going to be able to turn around. And it was, it was beyond just that. I mean, they even had Colombian conservative members of Congress endorsing Donald Trump and calling into Colombian radio shows saying that you need to vote for Donald Trump, right? And I ended up getting into shouting matches with these Colombians uh, because of that. I'm Colombian-American and tell them to stay out, stay out of our business. But there's a very sophisticated campaign that by the time Biden came along, um, it was too late. So what does it mean for the future? You know, I'm going to tell you right now, no matter what happens, Biden is definitely going to be doing better than he did last time with Latinos. And again, it's the power of the incumbency. It's the fact that the you know the you know the stimulus that he's doing right now is going to have huge effects. He's going to make mo- movements on immigration, and all those things are going to make a, a, a pretty big, sizable dent to the point where you'd see like places like I think Texas and Arizona. Texas is going to be bluer, and then you know Texas is going to be I think turning blue by by twenty twenty four. Florida, I think, is going to always be a Florida. We'll just have to figure that out. So the lesson you have to learn from this is that if you want the Latino vote and you want it at the levels that you want it, right, which is above 70%, you need to spend the money. You need to spend the time. You need to and, 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 and actively use and treat them as not just a base vote, but as a swing vote. And that's what we saw in Arizona. This is why Arizona, you know, everyone talks about, you know, the swing Republican that came over and voted for uh, Democrats. There weren't that many of it. The biggest story about Arizona was we had a huge surge of young Latino voters and a huge surge of Native voters that overcame the surge that, that, that Donald Trump pulled out. 
in my reading of the situation right now, there's this sort of dominant narrative taking hold, which is uh, you look at the raw data and the full context of the past few years. Uh, and uh, the story people are telling is that um, like a large segment of the Latino population, particularly Latino men, are easily spooked by propaganda and they'll switch parties over it. Uh, and so Democrats need to tread really carefully uh, around policy issues that trigger that tendency, particularly any policy issues that pit Democrats against law enforcement in particular, right? And I disagree with that, too. I mean, like, I actually overperformed Biden in my district by four points, and I'm way to the left of Biden. Right. Right. And so you point to all these confounding elements that, or elements that confound that version of events, but then the, the, an alternative story is that you have turnout through the roof, which means that a bunch of poorly understood voters, like voters that don't normally vote and that aren't well understood by either party, participated this time, and some of them got checks with Donald Trump's name on them, and uh, some of them achieved a level of economic prosperity during his administration, and some, like you said, may have been taken with his authoritarian style of politics. By the way, some some of this is is racism, too. (laughs) That's the other thing. People people are totally, you know, Latinos are racist, too. And there was there was those very there was a big element, an underground element about how the Biden administration was quote unquote just focusing on on black people. And there was a, there was propaganda, there was commercials on it. And you have to remember, especially for a lot of Latinos, first generation Latinos, especially males, racism does run through our community. And and it and it and it will take effect if someone actually lear- learns how, like the Trump people did, learns how to just kind of push at it, right? But this is one. It's actually been interesting to see a lot of our our friends, all these you know very practical and pragmatic people. The one thing they haven't all brought up is, you know, the fact that some some Latinos are into fascism, some Latinos are racist, and Trump called them out, and they came out and voted, and it's. It's okay that we can acknowledge it because we should work against that. But like not even considering that that's the case is, is, is very dangerous too. Right, right. Like the, the appeal of story one is that, well, if we just avoid these hot button issues, uh, the problems that we uh, stumbled over in this election will just go away. The more nuanced story, the more complicated one, the one that forces Democrats to confront things like racism within the Latino community that you just mentioned that maybe make people feel uncomfortable, but also the incumbency issue and the, uh, you know, the economic conditions issue, they deprive people in the party of a simple explanation for what happened. And so there's no lesson to be drawn from it. And my sense is people are just like, they want, they, they, they want to know that something caused it so they can fix it. And it's just not the case. Well, they, I mean, they, the easy answer they want is like, there, there's a couple easy answers. Number one, there's an aberration. It only works for Trump. Um, and once he's gone, the, the Latino come back. Like that, like number two, uh, you know, we just need to run the right type of campaigns and we'll, we'll get them back. Or number three, we should just stick to these issues and then we'll get them back. No, it's a very complicated situation. It's a very complicated community and we need to treat them with the respect that they deserve, right? Like any other community, right? The amount of, I actually pointed out this to a, a political consultant, how many different ways do we campaign to try to get that last white moderate vote? We talk to them in 35 different ways, right? But when we talk to Latinos, we talk to them in only one or two ways, right? And only two types of messages. When it's in fact that like, we are so diverse, right? And, and we are, 
it, it, you can't just talk to us with one commercial. If you really want us to come out strongly, again, you have to spend the money. And when you spend it, you get it, which is what happened like in Arizona, for example. Coming up, why Congressman Gallego believes some Latinos now regret voting for Donald Trump. And we talk Republican disinformation. Why Democrats must get better at playing whack-a-mole with it. And whether they have a plan to do it. When we return. Rubicon is brought to you by Nebbia. Backed by some of the biggest names in Silicon Valley, including Tim Cook, it's designed by former Tesla, NASA, and Apple engineers who spent years researching and developing a superior shower experience that saves water and is anything but ordinary. The Nebbia by Moen Spa Shower is Nebbia's most advanced shower yet, with twice the coverage and half the water usage of standard shower heads. Despite using 45% less water, its spray is 81% more powerful than the competition. Nebbia's atomized droplets rinse shampoo and conditioner out of even the thickest hair. With easy self-installation, Nebbia by Moen can be installed in 15 minutes or less without the need for contractors, plumbers, or broken tile. If you can change a light bulb, you can install Nebbia by Moen. Nebbia balances functionality with a clean aesthetic to achieve a timeless design. The Nebbia by Moen Spa Shower is available in four premium finishes to complement any bathroom. White and chrome, spot-resist nickel, matte black, and black and chrome. Maybe you've used standard shower heads your whole life and you think, why fix what isn't broken? But you're wrong. And it only takes about 15 minutes worth of work to give this system a try. Nebbia also offers accessories such as shower shelves, shower curtains, hooks, and bath mats, which pair perfectly with the shower's stunning design. The Nebbia by Moen Spa Shower starts at just $199, and for Rubicon listeners, we have a deal for you. The first 100 people to use code Rubicon at Nebbia.com will get 15% off all Nebbia products. Nebbia rarely does deals like this, so this is a great deal to jump on. Go to Nebbia.com slash Rubicon, that's N-E-B-I-A dot com slash Rubicon, to check out what they have to offer. The first 100 people to use code Rubicon when checking out will save 15% on all Nebbia products. Again, that's nebbia.com slash Rubicon and use that code Rubicon to save 15%. Rubicon is brought to you by Super Coffee. Super Coffee is the healthy, delicious alternative to sugary coffee drinks like Starbucks Frappuccinos and other iced coffee and energy drinks. Super Coffee combines the caffeine from two cups of coffee with protein and healthy fats to give you hours of focused energy with no jitters or crash. If, like me, you find yourself zapped by multiple daily commutes from your living room to your kitchen, having a stash of super coffee in the fridge is just the thing. Did you know a Starbucks Frappuccino has 52 grams of sugar and 370 calories? That's like starting your day with a double cheeseburger. Super coffee is just as delicious as a Frappuccino, but contains zero grams of sugar, 10 grams of protein, and only 80 calories per bottle. It's also keto-friendly, lactose-free, and gluten-free. Super Coffee's bestseller is their bottled coffees, but they also make tasty canned espressos, coffee creamers, and ground coffee. Super Coffee was recently named the fastest-growing food and beverage brand in America by Inc. Magazine. Super Coffee has a 60-day money-back guarantee, meaning if you don't love it, you get your money back, no questions asked. We've worked out an exclusive deal for Rubicon podcast listeners. Receive 25% off your first purchase. I recommend trying one of their best-selling variety packs or bundles. It's a great way to try all of their delicious flavors. To claim this deal, go to drinksupercoffee.com slash Rubicon or use code Rubicon at checkout. Super Coffee is also available nationwide in over 25,000 stores like Target, Whole Foods, Walmart, Kroger, and CVS. Welcome back to Rubicon. My guest is Arizona Congressman Ruben Gallego, who represents parts of Maricopa County. Before the break, 
We were talking about what President Biden and the Democratic Party can do to win back Latino voters in future elections. So you have all these factors at play. Some of them are within Biden's control to some extent, right? Like he can be a good president. And if he governs well and the economy is good when he runs. Basically, that's it. I, honestly, like I, I'm sorry to say, but if he does that, it's, he, get, he gets the Latino vote. You know, stipulate that. But, you, can, you know, uh, beyond that, you can also uh, communicate uh, more openly with all the uh, Latino communities across the country. And, you know, Donald Trump, if he doesn't run again, Republicans probably don't have a, you know, larger than life celebrity figure with these authoritarian. I'm going to blow your mind. If another Republican runs instead of Donald Trump, they would do better uh, than they would the Trump. And the reason why is because January 6th. Trump mob storms Capitol, forcing lawmakers into shelter and pretty much having their way with the Capitol building. That hit huge, deep impact within the Latino community. Because one thing people don't understand is Latinos are very deeply, deeply patriotic. Deeply patriotic. We know, yeah, I'm a Marine. Um, I have tons of my friends that are are Latinos, are are in the military. We have, you know, families that all have people in the military, right? And so we're very deeply patriotic, and which is why you, you, that also, by the way, draws some votes across the line to, to help Trump. One of my theories of why I outperformed Biden in Arizona is because I'm a veteran. And I, I got more, I got Latino males in my district to vote Trump and then vote for me, right? I'm a veterano, because other than that, there's no really, like policy-wise, I'm actually, again, more to the left of, of Biden, right? January right, right. 6th, was deeply and psychologically impactful in Latinos to the point where uh, there's, except for maybe the pockets down in, in Miami, a lot of them will never be able to vote for, for Donald Trump again because it, it reminds them a lot of, of what they grew up with in Latin America or they heard about in Latin America. And it's what makes them very prideful that we're not those countries anymore, right? That the United States is not that. This is a great detour. I hadn't even thought to ask about January 6th. So I think what you're saying is that there is a like a substantial population of, um, let's say, Clinton-Trump voters or people who didn't vote in 2016 and then voted for Trump, uh, Latinos who, having just voted for Trump, now regret their vote because of January 6th. Absolutely. Yep. Guarantee it. And, and a, lot, a lot of them are first generation, like, like first time voters, like they had just gotten their, their, their citizenship and it's the first time voters. Got it. Okay. Well, so we can shunt that issue off to the side. We can say that, you know, if, if Biden governs well, it'll solve a lot of problems on its own, et cetera, et cetera. But this problem that you mentioned of propaganda, um, I, I'm less clear on what Democrats, progressives, the mainstream media, whoever- Can do to combat it. Yeah. So, I mean, you recently called out House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy for spreading disinformation about terrorists infiltrating the country across the southern border. We asked him, which countries are people coming from? Yemen, Iran, Sri Lanka. They even talked about Chinese as well. And then as a subcommittee chairman, you got briefed on the matter and you said that the uh, briefing undermined McCarthy's claims. McCarthy was exaggerating, essentially. Hey, it's me again, popping in quickly to tell you what exactly Congressman Gallego said when he called McCarthy out on his bullshit. Soon after the cable networks began airing that McCarthy soundbite, Gallego tweeted, I am the chairman of the Intelligence and Special Operations Subcommittee. I had a briefing 90 minutes ago. What I saw is a far cry from what we got out of the minority leader earlier today. 
The implication is simple. McCarthy's full of it and using the cover of classified information to mislead people. That's why Gallego has requested a briefing for all members of the House, so that everyone understands how dishonest the Republican line on this is. I mean, I, I don't know if you're allowed to say any more than you said on That's, on a, that's all I can say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was just my obligatory question. But the, the, the main thing I want to get at is, are there other ways the House... House Chairman President Biden can leverage the power that they have by being the majority uh, to combat this kind of dis- disinformation? Because I kind of saw what you were doing there as as trying to use your influence as part of the majority party to push back on disinformation. And I haven't seen a whole lot of creative thinking along those lines about how to use legitimate small-D Democratic power to combat propaganda. The most important thing you need to do, and just like from, you know, the cl- training I've gotten so far is that the way you stop misinformation and propaganda is you try to stop it as early as possible because once it spreads, it's too late, right? And so one of the things that, you know, Republicans are really good at or just conservatives are really good at is like planting the seed and letting the seed spread to the point where by the time we get involved, it's the, the lie is so big, it must be true, right? And I'm sure you've heard that saying before. So when, so, you know, having, uh, I would say, in the military, we'd call it quick reaction force. I don't know what you call it in like a rapid response, I guess. Having a rapid yeah. <laughs> response people with like the data and like the kind of credibility to kind of say like, no, that's not true. Or like, you're misconstruing this right away helps at least from it not moving as fast in the, in, in the information currency. The fact that, you know, look at what, what happened. Because I challenged him, you know, now it's up in the air, right? At least it's up in the air. But before had I not even challenged it, this, this would have just been accepted as truth, Right. When in fact, from the intelligence I see, that's not the case. Um, but the the problem that you have here is like this: the the misinformation is just it's it's not like people running commercials. It's like this uh, organic, insidious kind of way to do it. I'll give you a good example. For example, the Colombians, what they would do is it had these huge WhatsApp groups, right? And uh, you know, I me being nosy and, and kind of understanding what they were up to, I actually would get myself involved in these what type group. What they would do is they would first start by legitimizing themselves by saying like, hey, you know, um, I'm, you know, raising money for this little village in Colombia. You know, if you want to donate money here or like during COVID, like, hey, I'm helping COVID patients, you know, could you donate money here? Oh, hey, I want to give you guys information about where to get tested for COVID. So they do that a couple of times. And then they start pushing smaller and smaller pieces of misinformation to the point where they radicalize that whole group uh, in that WhatsApp group, right? But you don't see that, right? You don't see that. And that's only 300 people, right? But you don't see it individually. So you have to, way to combat that is not like me being nosy and getting in there and saying, no, that's not true. Because if you try that, by the way, automatic pushback, full community pushback, because they've already gotten all the high mentality. You need to come in with the big message that overrides the smaller individual like needling messages that 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 are propaganda. And that has to come from the bully pulpit of leadership of the president, things of that nature. This almost reminds me of how like chain email. Yes, exactly. It's exactly chain emails. Yeah. Um, and so do, do you find that, you know, something that starts off in a relatively small WhatsApp group, WhatsApp group, like sort of filters from the people who become true believers in those chats into into Facebook and then yeah and then so suddenly you have you have whole t- whole towns that believe 
Correct. Well, then the algorithms then start jumping into this too, because the way that our social media works, because you know they're for-profit companies, if something gets clicked on, they try to find more people to follow those clicks, right? I'll give you a good example. Unfortunately, this is true. Me being a veteran, I put down that I'm a veteran. At some point, like I got this like our Russian time story, not about Russia attacking the United States or anything like that, about how these brave Russian soldiers were fighting in Syria against you know um, uh, jihad against the jihad, and I, I clicked on it just because like I'm like okay that's interesting like you know let, let's see what they're, they're saying right and it was very clearly propaganda, but the the links I would get after that like suggested were moving away from just like what Russia was doing to like you know what's the problem with Islam. And towards like, you know, all of a sudden, like, you know, Sharia law is getting spread through that throughout the United States, right? That was a progression. And that 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 is what happens all the time. Uh, and, and and it's very, again, very difficult to combat. Is there even a policy solution to this that uh, as a member of Congress, you can encourage or ask the Biden administration to pursue that is, you know, like, doesn't have some major constitutional defect because it's still speech, even if it's Meant to, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think we have to treat this like this is literally psychological operations. This is the kind of stuff that Russia was doing to us and we were doing to them. We have to treat this as psychological operations, both domestically and actually have a domestic source for that, like do the FBI or someone else mean that, and then internationally actually be actually fight it off internationally. Some of this stuff is, is actually, in my opinion, going to be eventually transnational. You know, I entirely see the Russians eventually tapping into the white supremacist network here and being able to try to motivate them, train them, or, you know, guide them, right? Much like they used to do to, like, the young communist clubs here back in the, back in the day when they were Russian times. Well, not to, not to like, sort of make an abrupt turn back to the uh, topic at hand, but I just want to close by asking you um, what you think should happen from here. Like, assuming this current migrant crisis slows and the news environment around it changes— how do you think Biden and Democrats in Congress should approach the immigration issue more generally over the next two or four years? Look, I think we have to explain two things. Number one, make sure we educate people like this is this is immigration flow, this refugee flow is separate from our overall immigration problem, right? So we need to you know solve that problem at hand. But we also need to communicate one thing I think is really important is that we want to f- fix immigration. We want Congress immigration reform to fix this problem because we don't want to keep doing this for the next 10 years. We want to have people come in here legally. We want people to be able to like apply for a visa to come and work. We don't want people coming through coyotes. You know, we we you know, we don't we're not for open borders. I think Democrats should be not be afraid to say that, right? Like and it's okay to say like, you know what? We're not for defunding ICE. We can say like we're we're for enforcement. We're not for abuse, right? We're for making sure that we target the the drug dealers you know, the human smugglers and not the mothers and the fathers, right? Um, and, you know, there's, we, we need to be able to communicate that. We need, and because it matters. Latinos voters understand this more than anybody else. Like, I can't remember who did the polling. I didn't do the polling, but someone did a polling. They showed that in the Latino neighborhoods, you ask them, do you want to defund ICE? They'd say no, right? Because they actually actively understand what happens with these communities. Now, is ICE a problem? Are they abusive? Yes. So you reform it, right? But like we... If we want to win this messaging war, we need to win it by getting the people that are still ambivalent on our side, not just to score, you know, points by by being able to say, like, who is the most left or who's the most progressive on it, right? Because at the end of the day, these are millions of people's lives on the line, right? And I would rather get them, you know, the, you know, legalize 
uh, in this country than to be able to score points to see who is more, you know, liberal or more left. The last time Congress tried to pass a comprehensive immigration reform bill, it did pretty well in the Senate and would have passed the House, I think, if it had received a vote. Yeah. But uh, Republicans prevented it from getting a vote at all. And um, then a kind of a lot has happened since then. Um, the legislation that, that Biden has proposed, and it just seems like the center of gravity of that debate is where it always was. Like you trade uh, pathway to citizenship for uh, for most immigrants for stricter enforcement. That brings Democrats and Republicans together. Uh, and you get a coalition that can support it, you know, and now Democrats control the House and Senate, so you can guarantee it a vote in both chambers. But do you think that that moment has passed? I think the moment has passed because I've been here and I've been, uh, you know, living in Arizona since 20, 2005. And then, you know, my, my family is, you know, uh, you know, I, I was born in the United States, but I lived in Mexico for a couple of years and we used to cross the border back and forth for work and everything else like that all the time. So this idea of immigration reform has been around forever. I've seen it. And this idea of we exchange, you know, more money for the border industrial complex in exchange for, um, you know, citizenship hasn't occurred. It, didn't, it never, never occurred, right? And so the, the border is well-financed. Border patrol is bigger than most armies in this world, right? So if we're going to live on, in this like la-la land that, you know, we'll get immigration reform once we secure the border, it's never going to happen because Republicans are gonna, never going to say it's, it, it's ever going to be clear, right? So we just need to go forward with an affirmative idea that immigration reform is good for this country, right? And it's actually better for, in terms of providing security for this country that we can get people to come here legally in a very like transparent and, and you know, uh, simple process. Uh, because if not, we're just going to hire thousands of more Border Patrol agents, and put, you know, more useless walls up, and you're never going to get, you're just never get the Republican votes. It's just not going to happen. So the advice to, uh, to the Biden administration, it sounds like, is something like, you have a better chance just sticking with the humanitarian aspects of comprehensive immigration reform bill, advance those, try to do it among Democrats. If Republicans want to support it, that's up to them. Uh, it doesn't just have to be humanitarian, though. It could, it, it's, just, it's economics, Right. Right. Like, we're not having children anymore. You want to keep this economy humming and growing? You need to have a growing population, right? We need immigrants for that, right? You want to just talk about pure patriotism. Like, this country is great because we've had generations of immigrants from all over the world that have been coming here for hundreds of years and really rebranding and relighting the fire of America, right? Like, why not continue doing that, right? And so this is, like, the, the better argument than, a, than, I think, in my opinion, than just a pure humanitarian argument. From your lips to President Biden's ears. I'll leave it there. Ruben Gallego, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your time. Keep sending us your questions. Our email address is rubicon at crooked.com. Listener Michael writes, what should the playbook for Democrats be in dealing with Republicans who are already touting the passage of the Biden COVID-19 relief bill? No sooner than the House passed the Senate's version of the bill than Senator Wicker began bragging about the money going to small businesses and restaurants. He didn't even vote for the damn bill. Should Democrats get ahead of the narrative now and call it out? No one's ever offered to pay me for political advice, but I think a playbook will materialize. Whether it's the Democratic Party or the White House, these are organizations that know how to mount a rapid response operation. But I also think the problem will take care of itself to some extent. Last time Republicans tried this game, trashing the Obama stimulus while taking credit for the projects it funded, Social media was still pretty young. Now it's one of the main ways politicians and their critics communicate. And when Republicans run this play again, 
the blowback will likely be automatic and sustained, as Roger Wicker learned. Rubicon is written and hosted by me, Brian Boitler. It's produced by Andrea Gardner-Bernstein. Veronica Simonetti is our audio engineer. Production support from Brian Semmel. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.